Hey guys, this is Cobain. What I want to talk about today is the question of whether the theology of the Church of Antiquity, the theology of the Fathers, and indeed of the Middle Ages, of the whole uh, Christian tradition, whether that is pagan or un- or anti-biblical because of its utilization of philosophical and metaphysical categories that were developed in concert with the classical metaphysical tradition. But I'm going to do that not by giving a negation of that claim so much as constructing a narrative that is rooted and grounded in the story of scripture and drawing out a particular thread of that narrative and showing how this thread not only permits us to utilize these tools, but actually demonstrates that it is essential to God's program of continuing to glorify the world in his house, which is the Church of Christ. But before we get into that, uh, if you enjoy these videos, if you get something out of them and you want to support this channel, please consider becoming a patron or a YouTube member. YouTube membership is slightly more expensive because YouTube takes a higher proportion of what you contribute but both of them provide the same benefits. In addition to select exclusive videos, though I like to keep most of my videos available to a general audience, uh, at the third tier of uh, patronage and YouTube membership, I guarantee, if you'd like to take advantage of it, one hour uh, at least of one-on-one -on -one discussion over the phone or Zoom or an equivalent medium about anything that you'd like to speak about. If you'd like to ask any question, I will answer that question as long as I think I have something useful to say. So if that is something which interests you and or you simply want to support the channel and uh, facilitate its continued activity, this is the reason I'm able to actually do this stuff is because of the patronage. Um, and also, if you would like to help remove the ads from the YouTube videos, uh, please consider becoming a patron. Um, when I get to a certain level, I'm I think it would be about 10, 15 more patrons, I'm, I'll be able to remove ads entirely from YouTube. So um, with that said, let's get into the main subject of today's video. It has often been alleged, especially in the 19th century, though the perception has really filtered down into kind of the common man uh, in contemporary times, even as it has declined in popularity among academics. Uh, it's often been alleged that the history of Christianity can be framed accurately as a beginning in Judaism with quote-unquote Hebraic categories of thought that progresses over time away from its roots and thus away from what Jesus and the apostles actually taught into a Hellenistic or quote-unquote pagan mode of seeing the world. And so the distinction and the dichotomy and the opposition between uh, alleged Greek and biblical categories is pervasive in the thought of many people. And many people, especially uh, Protestants, particularly those of a low church background, will look at Catholic and Orthodox Christianity and will seek to explain its distinctives relative to Protestantism in terms of an influence from the world of Greco-Roman paganism. And obviously, this has theological implications because Greco-Roman culture was, until the uh, conversion of the empire, uh, shaped by, at a very deep level, its idolatrous sacrificial worship. You must always keep in mind that sacrifice was something that the Gentiles did as well. Under God's instruction, Noah offered sacrifice, and we aren't given the covenant in detail in which the Gentiles worshipped according to, uh, in the Old Covenant, but we know that there was such a covenant in part because there are so many very precise and exact similarities in the religious traditions from across the world, including things like the structure of their temples and sanctuaries, the number of steps in their stepped pyramids, the proportions of the buildings, and the uh, various parts of the temple relative to each other, and so on and so forth. What I want to suggest to you is that the integration of Hellenistic, quote-unquote, metaphysical and philosophical categories and biblical prophetic categories is not only acceptable, is not only advisable, but actually constitutes an essential aspect of the work that God has done in Christ through the Spirit in the church. And that it is 
known to be part of that program because it was prophesied from the book of Genesis onwards. Now, that may sound like quite a striking claim to make, but actually, I think the biblical evidence is quite straightforward or more straightforward than you would expect it to be in this context. Father George Florovsky, probably one of the most important, or not probably, certainly one of the most important theologians of the 20th century, uh, one of the two best Orthodox theologians with Father Dimitri Staniloi, in my opinion, of the 20th century. Uh, he corresponded with St. Sophronia of Essex, who regarded Florovsky as a light, uh, keeping him on the royal road of the fathers. In his words, St. Justin Popovich uh, endorsed Florovsky in, in very strong and laudatory terms. Uh, but Florovsky called the project of the fathers of the church Christian Hellenism. And Hellenism for him did not refer to a particular... Uh, uh, and localized cultural expression of the gospel. Rather, it was the, the gospel as it was articulated in the language of the ecumenical creeds, the church that spoke in the language of the seven councils. The revelation that God had made in Jesus Christ was a revelation that could be apprehended according to a symbolic mode of reasoning in the language of precise metaphysical categories. Some people will suggest that because uh, creation is so different from the infinite God that creation cannot reveal God. But God made the world in order to disclose himself. Everything in the world is a symbol of God and God invented language itself and gave it to Adam so that Adam could name the beasts and the birds on the first day of his existence. Language is, in fact, essential to our relation, not only with each other, not only with the world, but to God himself. You will see how language serves more than an instrumental role when noting that you have an internal dialogue, and that in this internal dialogue is crucial in formulating your own way of speaking and thinking. To use linguistic symbols and associate them with concepts, concepts which have a great degree of subtlety to them, allows one to bring these complicated concepts into a structured relation to each other and thus understand each concept more deeply. Just consider the very idea of a symbol. Now think about how would you remember that idea, that concept, if you didn't have a word for it? The word symbol is more than a way of speaking about the concept to other people. The word is rather something like a folder, which enables you to file it away in your mental filing cabinet, to organize it, to see its relationship to everything else. We need this linguistic clothing. As St. Ephraim the Syrian says, with respect to the Bible, God has clothed himself in our language. Now, the language of metaphysical categories is something which arises in our literary record around the 6th to the 4th centuries before Christ. And the categories that we use most frequently and often are from the Hellenistic world. Most importantly, we've got the triad of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Uh, one of my uh, uh, friends and a godson uh, pointed out to me that this actually corresponds in an interesting way to the triad of patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Now, from a literary point of view, the actual three patriarchs of Genesis in Genesis 12 to 50 are Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Isaac is part of the Jacob cycle in the book. And my friend uh, associated this with uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And Aristotle was a tutor to Alexander the Great, whose conquest of the Near East spread Hellenistic culture uh, across the known world. And thus, he expanded the circle of conversation, which was mutually enriching and allowed this tradition to develop and to become a kind of intellectual lingua franca. Now, you don't have to buy this association. I think it's an interesting point, and I think that actually there are some biblical reasons to think that uh, the development of Hellenistic philosophy is significant in God's design for history. Now, the fathers of the church in their theological program did more than simply take Greek words and use uh, them to express the revelation of God in Christ. 
Let's not forget that the revelation of God in Christ is a revelation of God through the word, through the Logos, whom we know in the spirit, who apprehends all the thoughts of God. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says that our spirits, with a lowercase s, are the means by which we apprehend our thoughts, and the Spirit of God searches out all of the depths of his mind. And so to have the Spirit of God indwelling our heart and joining us uh, with God by the union of spirit and spirit, that allows us to be gathered into the mind of God and to search out his thoughts in the same breath that we search out our own thoughts so that his thoughts might become our thoughts. And just as everything in creation is a symbol in one way or another of God and who he is and what he has spoken, so also do all of our words become in this relationship an expression of who God is and what he has told us in Jesus Christ. The mystery that was hidden has now been disclosed. That is the meaning of mystery in the biblical sense. Not something which cannot be known, but something which has now been made known in Christ, who is the wisdom and the word of God. Now, Slarovsky pointed out to deny the essential role of uh, the rational aspect of the human being in the construction of an articulate theological program can be rooted in an implicit Apollinarianism. Apollinarius denied that Christ had a human soul, that the divine Logos joined himself to creaturely reason, to the creaturely mind. And what this does is it removes our mind and our reason from the realm of that which is sanctified by its union with the uncreated God. But if the God who is known through the word has joined himself with our reason, with our capacity to speak words, if he has appropriated our human life together with our human thinking, then he has made that thought a suitable vessel to express his own glory in a theological program. The Apostle Paul speaks of uh, the renewal of our minds. And this, is, this does have relevance to the use of reason in theology. We see in Ephesians, Paul used language like us knowing the height and depth and breadth and length. And this kind of architectural language is taken directly from Moses and the prophets, where it refers to the revelation from God of the precise and exact dimensions of the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle and the temple are architectural world models, and they are architectural models of a body. The temple has legs, ribs, a heart, a head, so on and so forth. That's in the Hebrew language, the words that are used. And what the exactitude of these dimensions imply for us is the comprehensive nature of divine purposefulness. Everything that happens, every little detail of the world's ongoing history, has a purpose in the mind of God. A purpose which in principle can be made known and symbolized in language. And that is what we are doing by the grace of the Holy Spirit who illumines us in theology. And Paul speaks of the height and the length and the breadth and depth. In this very context, he then says, so that we may know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. For in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. And we in him can be filled with that very same fullness according to the grace of the Spirit, so that the Spirit might illumine us as to how to express the divine truths which were before all things. Now, the construction of Hellenistic philosophy was not an accident in the history of the world. From a biblical point of view, the prophecy of the union of Hellenistic philosophy and Christian theology, of Hebrew prophecy, of the words of God with the uh, categories of the Greeks, as they were shaped and remolded by the church fathers, so that something truly original was produced by the union of these two things, something which could not exist in Hellenistic categories unless it was united with the divine revelation found in prophecy, is in the story of the flood and its immediate aftermath. 
Now, what God is doing in Genesis chapter 1 is he is obviously creating a world. But the point I want you to take home is that that work does not end on the sixth day. God creates man in his own image, and it can be forgotten if, because we're so used to thinking of this in kind of abstract, dehistoricized uh, contexts, but when we read that phrase, image of God, likeness of God, the immediate context is what has come before in Genesis chapter 1. So the question is, if you had just read Genesis chapter 1, what would you think image of God was about? Well, most obviously, almost so obviously that you don't even consider it, image of God means that a person is doing the things which God has done. And that's, in fact, exactly what's going on. God has given, uh, given life to the world. He has caused the earth to bring forth plants which bear fruit. And so he calls human beings by the union of male and female to bear fruit, to be fruitful, to multiply. And most importantly, to have dominion over the earth and to subdue it. That is, to do the kinds of things that God has been doing throughout the six-day creation. And that, of course, is why the Sabbath of Israel's covenant is modeled on God's pattern of activity and rest. Because our work in the world reshapes and restructures the world exactly and precisely because that is what God was doing. He created everything from nothing in Genesis 1-1, but it was just a formless void and dark, dark mass of water. But he restructured and remolded and reworked it into the beautiful and complicated uh, and elegantly harmonious creation that we find on the sixth day. But that work was not finished. When God says, let us make man, that is the human family, the one organism who is both male and female. When God says, let us make, he is announcing the beginning of a project, not its end. Man, the human family, that one image, which in Genesis 5, 1 to 2, is made in the image of God. That one image reflects the life of God because God is one and three. So man also is one and many. One human family, one nature, and yet male, female, and offspring. Genesis 11, we see this language let us again in relation to the Tower of Babel. Why? Because it is here that God creates out of the undifferentiated mass of humanity a plenitude of nations. Let us, let us. And God's creation of the world in distinct bricks of time and as a sophisticated and interrelated structure of distinct things that is a project which is being developed through and in human history human being is a microcosm a miniature model of the world why is it that we can understand the patterns in which the stars move it is because that information as it were that those archetypal principles by which things are the way they are is part of our programming, if you'll allow me to use that turn of phrase. It is in a way pre-installed. We recognize blueness in the world because the form of blueness is already in us as the creature who is made after the image of God and to attain his perfection in union with him. This is the way in which the platonic notion of the remembrance of the forms ought to be understood. And it connects with the idea of the remembrance of God in the Holy Eucharist because the Eucharist reveals to us and communicates to us the one who is before all things and through whom and in whom and according to whom all things were made. So when we read the Bible, what we're reading is actually the ongoing creative development of the world. And it is not that God creates on one hand and the man also throws some stuff in, but it is rather that as an integrated whole, God will create through the human family. Even those who rebel against God find that their own actions, their own attempts to rebel are repurposed according to God's purpose. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, says Joseph. Just as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the tree by which man was to be crowned as king, Solomon says that he desires to have wisdom to know good and evil. Man was eventually meant to partake of this tree, but he seized it before he was prepared. He was given a robe, a garment of animal skins, sacrificial skins. And Joseph was given in due time a garment of Pharaoh's making. 
Pharaoh sought a wise and discerning man in whom was the Spirit of God, just as Adam had originally been given the Spirit in Genesis 2-7. And Joseph, most importantly, now living in Egypt, which in Genesis 13 is like the Garden of the Lord, Joseph now knows good and evil. He understands what is suited to facilitate a particular purpose, and more importantly, what the perfection of that purpose is. So he can rule wisely because he knows how God runs the world. He knows how God rules wisely. And he is able to this see, therefore, how God's development of the world actually proceeds even through, not just in spite of, but through those who rebel against him. God repurposes their activity so that his intention is different from theirs and their activity fulfills God's intention and not their own rebellious intention. So when we move forward in the book of Genesis, when we are reading this as a ongoing narrative of how God is creating the world through the human family and in the human family and under man's dominion, we see that God is developing and maturing and growing mankind through the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5. He baptizes the world in the flood. He cuts off the flesh. He cuts off that which would seek to destroy his world. The enemy seeks to poison man and thus cause God to destroy it on his behalf so that man would never be exalted. But God has Noah build a miniature world model in the ark, bring the representatives of all the created kinds into that ark, and then he will baptize the world so that Noah is exalted by the very water that drowns the wicked. And so the attempt to destroy the tree of mankind was a failure. In fact, God not only redeemed and saved mankind, but he did so through mankind. Because Noah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he did exactly as God commanded him, as is said several times in the story of Genesis 6-9. to And after the flood, Noah is exalted above where Adam was. God has the power over life and death, but Noah is given the power to exercise the death penalty. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed because God, was made, God made man in his own image. The because there explains both parts of this. It is a capital crime because man is made in God's image, but it is man who carries out the sentence because man is made in God's image and likeness. Moreover, Noah goes on to plant a vineyard just as God planted a garden. And Noah will issue curses as well as blessings, just as God issued curses in Genesis chapter 3. Noah will rest in his tent just as God rested in the world on the first Sabbath after the six-day creation. And what Noah says is very important because when we keep this context in mind, we recognize that we're reading about the ongoing creation of the world, we see that this prophecy is fundamentally about the way in which God realizes that creative intent through time. And what Noah says is that God will, uh, let me just get it exactly. God will enlarge Japheth and he will place him in the tent of Shem. And in this context, Noah curses Canaan. This has connections to the story of Genesis 19, which has incest involved, and it's about the incestuous production of Moab and Ammon, who perpetuate Canaanite culture, and so I think there's some of that going on, but that's not the main subject of this video, and it's a whole other kind of uh, thing to go into. But what we have here is a prophetic anticipation of the whole structure of the history of mankind up to the Messianic age. Blessed be the Lord... The God of Shem. Okay, so the Lord, the Tetragrammaton, yad heh vav -Heh, this is the name of God which discloses his character according to his covenantal relationship with his people. Seth called on the name of the Lord. That is a liturgical term. It has to do with an altar. What that means is that Seth was the priestly line. The genealogy of Seth is the genealogy through which the messianic seed comes. The destiny of the seed, which is prophesied in Genesis 3, and that is about the Messiah, that is a major literary theme throughout the Pentateuch and the Prophets. I have a video on this, so I won't go into it, just to say people who say that Genesis 3.15 is not messianic simply do not know how to read the Bible. It absolutely is, and this can be proved from not only the Old Testament, but from the Pentateuch and even the book of Genesis. That is a major theme here. Noah is presented as a type of the Messiah. Why? Because we've got a seed which is prophesied, and then you've got a genealogy, and it ends with Lamech, who 
gives birth or who fathers Noah and he says about him that he will bring rest. In other words, he will bring a renewal of the sabbatical principle, which was lost in the fall and the degeneration of human civilization. God will be victorious in, with, and through mankind. So this priestly line is going to continue through Shem. And this is accentuated by the fact that Shem's name means name. The name of the Lord is what was called upon by Seth in the days of his son. It is by that name that the priestly nation is distinguished as an elect and consecrated people. And it is through Shem that that thread continues to develop. Now, this language is going to be reused in Genesis chapter 14, when Melchizedek gives a blessing to Abram in the name of this very Lord and God. Now, there is a tradition, it's in uh, both some Jewish authors and indeed in some Syriac Christian authors, or at least St. Ephraim the Syrian, uh, that Shem is identical with, with Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It seems to be a throne name. And the fact that he's ruling from Jerusalem suggests, I mean, it, this is Jerusalem. And I think if we kind of read between the lines here, uh, we find that just as Babylon or Babel was the first city, then Jerusalem or Salem or Zion was the second city, just as we've got a first and a second Adam, a first and a last Adam, and the city of God is Zion, the city of man is Babylon. And so we see the conflict between these two archetypal cities throughout the uh, Law and the Prophets. And that's why Adam's bones are buried at the threshold of the city of Jerusalem and how Christ is crucified over those bones. This is something that I actually kind of uh, developed as a, as, as a hypothesis for what happened and then i found out that there was a tradition which described exactly that and i'm not saying well seraph hamilton is really brilliant but uh but instead it seems that uh this is an accurate way of reading scripture because it allows you to predict what actually was recorded explicitly in various traditions so, you know, at the threshold of a city you will offer a sacrifice. It's a major and very widespread custom in the ancient world and in the Bible. So um, a perverse way of doing this is by killing a human being. There is an allusion to this in the story of Cain, right? So Cain kills his brother and then he builds a city. Same kind of thing happens, Romulus and Remus. When does Romulus kill Remus? When he crosses the threshold. He kills Remus, builds a city. A city built on the blood of the slain brother. In uh, the book of Kings, he yelled. Fulfilling a prophecy made earlier in the book of Joshua. He rebuilds the city of Jericho by offering his son as a sacrifice. Well, Jesus is the blood which gives birth to the city of God because it is the blood that is freely given out of love. And it is what creates through its threshold the new Jerusalem. And that is why in our iconography, we have the crucified Christ. And beneath that crucified Christ, we have bones, which represent and depict the bones of Adam. And so Noah took these bones on the ark, and he gave them to his heir, who is Shem. And Shem brought them to the city which he had constructed, which is J Jerusalem or Salem. And he, built, he put it at the threshold, and that's where Jesus was crucified. And then 10 years later, the city actually expanded to include the place where Jesus Jesus had been crucified and resurrected. Uh, that all is actually explicitly found in various traditions, which is really cool because I thought it was just something I was guessing at. In any case, point being that Abram is the heir to the covenantal thread, which has been given and entrusted to Shem here. Abram brings Melchizedek a tithe as Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. So Jesus gives us himself in the Eucharist, and we place our tithe on that Eucharist, thereby joining our work to his work so that our work might be seen in him, perfected and brought to its appropriate purpose and consummation. And in Genesis 9, we're not only told that Shem will be blessed in the name of the covenant Lord, in the name of the Lord who will call for himself a specific nation who is chosen and sanctified and uh, given a special set of lessons that the world will then le learn through it. It's the whole story of the Old Testament. 
But Noah says something else. He says, May God enlarge Yafeth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Now, there's a reason that the conquest is mentioned in this context. And I'm not going to spend much time right now mentioning it. I actually will probably discuss it in the next video in this kind of vague series talking about this topic. Um, but the reason for the conquest is that God had made a promise that he was not going to destroy the world again by a flood. And the reason God destroyed the world by a flood is because corruption spreads like a disease. Just does. You you take a small time criminal was probably a, a gentleman and a scholar, but you know he uh, he mellowed out with some THC and you throw him in jail and he connects with a group of fun guys and by the time he comes out of jail, well now he's just as fun as they are. By which I mean violent criminal. Paul speaks of death spreading to all men in the language of the Levitical purity system where flesh, displaying flesh, renders you ritually impure because of its association with death, and it spreads, it's contagious. So this is how death spreads to all men. One of the things that makes you impure is childbirth because you're actually transmitting the contagion of death in the birth giving of children, and you're impure for less time if you give birth to a male child because the male child is circumcised, and that's a type of the sacrifice of Christ, so it reduces your impurity doesn't remove it because it's only a type but it reduces it and that's why it's 40 days there rather than 80 days 40 days corresponding to the 40 weeks uh, of pregnancy and isn't it interesting um, that pregnancy takes 40 weeks another one of those things which just you don't think about but it's quite striking when you do think about it because there's a great deal of theological significance in that and it's not arbitrarily foisted on uh, in an ad hoc way but Canaan effectively represented the culture of the antediluvian world, and it existed at the center of the post-diluvian world. Uh, the land of Israel was the um, hub of uh, travel in many ways. Uh, Ezekiel speaks of Jerusalem at being at the navel of the world, belly button of the world. It's the center of the human family. And when life is given, it flows out from Jerusalem. But the Canaanites, at the time of the conquest, not in fact in the time of the patriarchs, where there were righteous Canaanites who joined the Abrahamic family. That's why the uh, patriarchs were prophets who preached the word of God and called them to repent and join up. If you were a Canaanite, if you wanted to inherit your land, keep your ancestral land, that's fine. Join the family of Abraham. You go into Egypt with them. You come back up and uh, you inherit your ancestral land as an Israelite. Most Israelites were descended from people who joined up talk about that probably in another video but we're told they wiped out everything that breathed alluding to everything in which there is the breath of life uh, is destroyed in the flood because this is a flood it is fulfillment of a prophecy here their wickedness is filled up through time and they are destroyed through a corporate national death penalty which is given through israel because of the mandate that had been given to noah which is about preserving and uh, the world's existence because everything exists in man and so when man goes the wrong way so does the cosmos if everyone goes the wrong way everything falls apart as it did in the flood so that's why canaan is mentioned here it's actually essential to the development of the human family through time not just so that israel would continue to exist that's okay, much too simple god's work is much more comprehensive but god plants this nation to whom he sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. To whom he brings his personal presence in the temple. He places this nation now at this crossroads of the world. And instead of the culture of the antediluvian world and its wickedness flowing out to the ends of the earth. Now it's something different. The nations hear about Solomon's wisdom. They learn from it. And these events in the history of Israel at the crossroads of the world, it has a butterfly effect. The nations that exist at the time of Christ are not the nations that would have existed had Israel never been called and chosen. God creates the world through mankind and through his chosen nation. 
and the only reason that the Gentiles are suitable to be joined together with the Israelites in the time of Jesus is because God has been systematically and perfectly bringing forward and bringing out a kind of Gentile civilization which can be joined to his people. And so when Noah says, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, this is not a throwaway passage. First of all, the tent idea has strong connections with the notion of the sanctuary, the dwelling of people. There are laws about everyone's house in Leviticus because we are the image of God. And so our houses represent and are affected by God's house. So the laws of house leprosy, and yes, there is a thing, are used in Zechariah to describe things which happen to the temple. And in fact, Jesus uses these prophecies when he describes, elusively in terms like echoing various texts, when he describes what he's doing to the sanctuary, to the temple, when he cleanses the temple twice. Actually, the temple is, thing is, you give a house two chances in Leviticus 14. House leprosy spreads, give it two chances, third one you knock it down. Well, Jesus cleansed the temple twice. One of the many things you will miss if you think that, you know, John just for some reason stuck it at the beginning. Um, various interpretations of that, but this is the correct one. Uh, in my humble but accurate opinion, as N.T. Wright has sometimes said. Um, so may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Remember that the whole world is a house of God. Man is the image of God. We're building God's house. And building God's house by building our own houses because they're joined to each other, not only in a merely symbolic sense, no true symbol is a mere symbol, but in a causal sense. Because they are connected in this way, it is not merely one gives a person the idea for the other, but rather that the fact that one uh, is the idea for the other We'd say in the liturgy, you're most holy an ideal altar. I, this is a, the idea of the archetype, right? The fact that they are so connected facilitates a causal link between the two so that changes in one will affect the other. Okay, you, you screw up your house? Well, it means that impurity uh, attacks God's house. That's why you have a day of atonement where that's all carried away. And the temple the house in which God dwells, simultaneously represents the collective house of Israel. The nation as a whole is represented therein because God and Israel dwell in the same house because they're husband and wife, bridegroom and bride. Song of Songs uses the language of the recently constructed temple to articulate the relationship that he has with his Egyptian bride. He marries the daughter of Pharaoh. Marriage is a way that you are included in the family. We find that wells or springs in the times of the patriarchs and in the book of Exodus uh, are found where an Israelite righteously marries a Gentile, a believing Gentile who is, believes in the one God of heaven. And one of the reasons for that is because there was a spring on Mount Eden that flowed to the ends of the earth through four uh, rivers which split up in the Garden of Eden and the language used for those rivers is used for the nations. So this is one way in which life flows as water from a river of life to the nations of the world. They are included in the family by intermarriage. Abraham is father of many nations. Well, one way that you become the father of someone new, of a new nation, is your son will marry a woman representing that nation. Okay, so no indication at all that Solomon sinned by marrying an Egyptian. And just like Joseph. Joseph married an Egyptian. No indication that he sinned whatsoever because the Pharaoh wasn't a pagan. It's only very specific nations um, who are the subjects of prohibited marriages in Deuteronomy 7. And even for those, they could abandon their, their Canaanite identity as we find in other places in the Bible uh, and become an Israelite and be married in that way. But they couldn't be a distinctively Gentile fearer of God with a Canaanite identity. So Solomon writes a song of songs and it's about bringing Pharaoh or bringing uh, Pharaoh's daughter under his own roof. Brings Pharaoh's daughter under his own roof. Well, now Israel in Egypt 
in a way they've been intermarried. And because the house in which King Solomon dwells is the house of God, it's a representative of God as the king, that means that the nations of the world are being brought under the covering of God's divine presence. Something symbolized in the Feast of Tabernacles, we got 70 bulls symbolizing the 70 nations of the world which are sacrificed. And you got, uh, and you have uh, dwelling in uh, uh, tree branches. Okay, tree branches, they represent the cloud of divine glory. You see this in Zechariah 14, by the way, where Egypt is actually one of those nations specifically mentioned as being called to go up to the uh, city of Jerusalem, the city of God, which is infilled and permeated by divine presence. Lots of places you can go with this. Point being, though, that the house of God is the house of Israel. David says, I want to build you a house. God says, no, I'll build you a house. Well, guess what? Both of those threads are fulfilled in the very same act, the incarnation of Jesus the Messiah, where God builds a house forever with us in the body of Jesus, uh, the incarnate Logos. And he is the son of David and the heir to his kingdom forever and ever. It's beautiful how these things roll together that way. So, you've heard about the union of these various nations. The union of these various nations is usually expressed in terms of their relationship in a city. A city is a distinctive kind of environment. In a way, it's a more international environment. It's a sanctified environment. You have different laws about purity and sanctity in a city than you would on the land. There are special laws for specially consecrated cities, like Levitical cities or cities of refuge. We see in the biblical prophets that it is the city which is the sign of the messianic age. If we want to understand the transference of old to new covenants as the transformation from a priestly age to a royal age, by the same token, it is a transformation from an age of the land to an age of the city. A city is more precisely and exactly structured. It's more developed. It's developed more by the agency and partnership of human beings. And the city which is evil is the city which seeks to destroy the land. But the city which is God's city is the city which perfects the land. The city which grows out of the garden, but does not make it anything other or anything less than a garden. Revelation 21 and so forth. So when God says that he will enlarge Japheth and cause him to dwell in the tents of Shem, number one, there's a reason this is we're told this. Number two, the fact that we are told it in the primeval history, where history is very greatly abbreviated, suggests that it is of very special importance to God's overall program. Third, the program which it is special to and exists in service of is the program of the development of the world in and through the human family. And fourth, as Christians, we understand that this program is realized in Jesus Christ. Christ. Jesus is the incarnate Logos, the son of David, the messianic king. And if you want the most concisely stated evidence that he is the messianic king, I want you to consider that around the world, there are billions, billions with a B, of Gentiles who worship explicitly the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and consider his revelations to Moses and the prophets to be his word. Not only so, but thousands or tens of thousands every year go to Jerusalem. They make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem around Passover time. Why? Because they are worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who they say has revealed himself in a Jew named Jesus of Nazareth. Now that is the visible, concrete sign that the prophetic hope has been realized. Just as the conquest took time. So also, just the sanctification of the world take time. And this is not an ad hoc excuse because it is not as if the promissory note is merely promissory. It is not as if Christianity is a tiny little cult and has been for 2,000 years. Christianity is the largest tradition in terms of the tradition of the memory of God's disclosure of himself. It objectively refers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can say he wasn't the real Messiah, but don't go on and say, well, if the Messiah had come, we should obviously see it outside. Because look out your window and you will find that everybody around you knows who the God of Abraham is. How did they, who, from whom did they learn that? From whom did they learn Moses' identity? 
Anyway, as Christians, we believe that this program has been realized in Jesus the Messiah. And the centrality of this union of Shem and Japheth to that program, their intermarriage in a single house, in a single tent, that tent being the tent of Shem and thus the tent of God, because Shem, that means name, and at the tent of Shem, we call upon the name. It is an altar, an altar which grows into a temple, which grows into a city. Ezekiel 40 to 48, see, temple is a temple city. Zechariah uh, chapter 2 and following shows us that the city of God is surrounded by a wall of fire in the Messianic age. Who is the one who brings that fire? We are told in Zechariah 3 and 6. It is one who signifies my servant, the branch. Well, branch, that's a Messianic title. Branch of David. Jeremiah 23. A branch from his roots, the root of Jesse, will bear fruit. Isaiah 11. We're told in Zechariah 3 and 6 that the high priest who symbolizes the Messiah is named Jesus. No joke. His name is Jesus. Jesus as a name, Yeshua, that's Joshua. It's the shortened form that predominates in Aramaic. The name of the high priest who explicitly signifies the Messiah, Yehoshua. That's the full form of the name Yeshua. That is the Messianic king. He wears a crown. And not just the priestly crown. He bears royal honor, we're told in Zechariah 6. He sits on his throne, we're told. Those who from far off come to build the temple of the Lord, we're told. Those are Gentiles, Isaiah 60. The nations will come from afar to lay their gifts and to help build God's sanctuary, God's altar. In my next video, we'll talk about some of the specific ways that God developed and constructed mankind as he moved towards the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of this will be speculative. I'm going to try to keep it mostly in terms of what the text of the Bible actually says, but I do want to mention some concrete ways I think this, this is uh, likely true. Talk about the centrality of God to history, and as you know, I, I believe... The Bible is all true. It includes its chronology. And that's why when you look in the places that the conventional chronology, which is much longer than the biblical one, you look in the places they say we should be finding the Exodus, you find nothing. And when people say, you know, the Egyptians didn't record their defeats, I mean, look, we have to be serious people here, okay? Um, <laughs> you, you cannot cover up the kind of destruction that is written about in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh's counselor said, do you not see that Egypt is destroyed? The numbers, the population of people, and I'm aware of the issues surrounding that, but and I, I, don't, I don't buy the argument that it's actually just symbolic or, or, or has been mistranslated. You know, 2 million people, about 600,000 men. 600,000 men. That's what Egypt loses. Well, Manetho, an Egyptian historian, he writes in the Greek literary style, he says that God smote us. He uses this phrase. He says, we were struck by a blast of God, for what reason I do not know, and that allowed the Hyksos to come in and conquer Egypt without striking a blow. So the, the Hyksos invasion was not because, or was not the reason Egypt was destroyed. It was one of the consequences of that destruction. And Manetho says God, in the singular, not the gods, God. What's he talking about? Well, Israel walks out of Egypt, they meet the Amalekites. You know what the Amalekites are called in Egyptian sources? They're called the Amu. When do we see Amalekites as a central player again after the book of Exodus? We see them in the time of the kingdom of David and Solomon. We see an Amalekite with an Egyptian slave. The behavior of the Hyksos in our sources is absolutely appalling. They're vicious, vicious, bloodthirsty people. They conquered and ruled Egypt, according to our sources, for 400 years. Then, God raises Egypt from the dead. This is not stated explicitly in the Bible. This is reading between the lines, but I think it's not all that much between the lines. I'm putting this at the end of the video because it's a little bit speculative, but I think it's really just amazing. God destroyed Egypt on account of, his, uh, of, of, of their persecution of his children, the children of Israel. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ.
Paul says in Ephesians about the Gentiles, but Israelites, but everyone. Egypt came back. Why? Who destroyed? If you buy what I've been saying about the Amalekites being the Hyksos, I think it makes a great deal of sense. I think there's lots of, uh, of evidence supporting this. If you buy that, who destroyed the Hyksos? Why do they disappear? King Saul destroyed them all, or almost all of them. First Samuel 15. To whose daughter was King Saul married? Ahimaaz. That's the name we're given. You know who the Pharaoh who conquer, who drove out the Hyksos? Want know what he was called? He was called Amos. It's the same name, essentially speaking, accounting for the difference in continents between the two languages and the fact that there was no vowel pointings um, in the Hebrew language or, to my knowledge, in Egyptian at that point. Ahmos. So this would explain where the Israelite alliance with Egypt comes from in the period of the monarchy, why Solomon marries a daughter of Pharaoh, and why, in fact, the northern kingdom, which was more powerful than Judah, and thus was politically considered by the surrounding nations to be the successor state of the Davidic and Solomonic Empire. Okay, so we think of it spiritually, biblically. Judah is the successor, right? No, no, but the, the nations around about, they thought, no, it's Jeroboam's kingdom. That's the successor state. And so that alliance continued. We read about in the Book of Kings that the northern kingdom for some time was allied with Egypt. That suggested a more long-standing partnership. In any case, God raised Egypt from the dead and redeemed them from the hand of their enemies through the very people on whose account they were judged in the first place. Die for eye, tooth for tooth. God... Uh, the, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. The Amalekites, or Hyksos, they come in and they make Egypt slaves. But that is not the end of the story. It is by the very hand that struck them down that they are lifted back up again. And I think this helps contextualize, actually, some of the literary development that we see in Egypt at the time of the expulsion of the Hyksos, which seems to correspond to what we read about in the wisdom literature. Now, of course, to believe any of this, you have to believe that the chronology of the ancient world is, is, is very profoundly off track, which I have no trouble believing at all. Um, but we'll talk maybe a bit about that in, in, in the next video. But I wanted to just say that at the end of this video because it was convenient and because I didn't want to make it seem like this was uh, necessary to buy kind of the theological program that I'm uh, pushing here. So, Tent of Shem, Japheth dwells, Paul unites Jew and Greek. We'll talk about this more. Paul is what? He is a tent builder. I'll see you next time.